deadlines and dates. I'm terrible. So anyways, next week or the next, we're going to start the book of Titus. I really like uh, the idea sometimes of going Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament with book studies. I also like sometimes doing books that people don't usually read. Plus, there's some difficult issues in Titus, so it'll be kind of fun to deal with them together, right? Okay. So today, we're going to do something really different because today is not going to be, I'm not going to be expository on a passage in any particular way. We're going to deal today with issues. And so it's a different sermon and it kind of dips into philosophy. And I know we got some philosophy students here and some people who may have philosophy degrees. Don't judge me, okay? I'm not an expert and it's going to be kind of a surface level thing. But I think these are important issues for us to deal with. And so I want to talk about this. I I, I entitled it Troubling Questions. Now, this is not all the troubling questions that people bring up when they talk about the Bible or they talk about Christianity. This This is just three, but it's three that oftentimes are struggled with at a very deep level, all right? And so I just want us to be thinking about this. We who are believers, we live in the exact same world that unbelievers live in. We see the same circumstances that they see, and and like them, or they like us, can be troubled by seeing evil and pain in this world and by the, the, the suffering that they see or the suffering that we experience and that they experience. And oftentimes, like us, they're disappointed in Christians and how they react. And oftentimes, they're disappointed in their lives and, and, and how they, the, the lack of progress or the lack of growth in dealing with issues in their lives. And yet we choose to believe in and to bet our entire existence on a God we cannot see, we cannot touch, we cannot hear necessarily, maybe sometimes, and cannot prove. And unbelievers choose to bet their entire existence on the notion that such a God does not exist. That's what's at stake. This is important, all right? And so today in this message, I want to look at what I can call the strange silence of God. And some people have mentioned it that way. I didn't make that phrase up. And I want to look at those areas that are troubling to people, oftentimes who would like to have faith, who would like to believe, but are unable to do so, or they find themselves wrestling, they find themselves struggling, they find themselves asking questions that oftentimes they don't feel we have the answers for. And so we're going to look at three that I find come up very commonly, often commonly in books, often commonly in books that are written by atheists or written by people who don't believe or, or people who are just asking questions. So I want you to see the first question, and all this is on the sheet you have in front of you. Um, the, the first question is this, why doesn't God reveal himself more clearly? All right? And so the thing is that people would say, if believing God is such a big deal to him, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he just part the clouds and just suddenly, you know, skywriting, I am God, obey or die, or something like that, you know, something like that. Why doesn't he give us more compelling proof and evidence? And, and listen, I'm, I'm the first to admit there's sometimes I wish I had more evidence. I would love to see more evidence. However, God seems to present himself to us in such a way that people who want to dismiss God will be able to dismiss God. He seems to leave space for that. People who do not, don't want there to be a God will find a way to believe that there is no God. And this gets to a very deep issue. What is God's goal for the human race? Because his goal for the human race is not to force people to admit that he exists. Forcing people to admit that God exists doesn't really solve the big problem. And the big problem is the human heart. 
Because even if people believe God exists, there still is a heart issue that needs to be dealt with. For example, I know this is, uh, um, this is something I talk about, and it's probably a, a, a flaw in my life psychologically. I'm, I'm thinking I didn't have enough mother's milk when I was an infant or something like that. But imagine you're driving down. I know, as soon as I said this is a flaw in my life, I can see some people going, oh, he's going to talk about driving. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right, and, we, and we talked about it last week now that I think about it. Imagine you're driving down the road, and you see a police car on the street near you. Now, honestly, how many times have many of you found your intention to obey the speed limit suddenly rises when you see that policeman parked up ahead? Now, what has happened? Has your heart suddenly changed and you find, you find yourself loving the idea of the existence of speed limits? No, it doesn't. You're just doing pain avoidance. That's what you're doing. And now let's get real. If the officer stops you, if you get that, you drive by and, you know, you're... Oh, right, we all look at me, look in the rearview mirror, and he's pulling out. Oh, crap! Right, and the lights come on. And you think, oh, I put somebody else, and then he pulls you over. Right, that sinking feeling that you get when that happens. Oftentimes, in your heart of hearts, you can think bad thoughts. Right, you can think there are murderers and thieves out there. I am an honest, tax-paying citizen. Why is he taking the time to pull me over? I don't think I was going that fast, but I wasn't paying attention, right? <laughs> or, you might, or you may be thinking this, oh, is it the end of the month? Does he have a quota? I know he has a quota. I know they have a quota. That's what it is. He's got to fill his quota, and so I'm going to get a ticket, right? Or maybe you've had a bad experience in the past, and so that, so that, immediately, that immediately colors how you look at this experience, some people I know will even try to flirt with an officer to avoid getting a ticket. I am not going to name names. I am going to move on. What happens is this. Our darkness, our self-preoccupation will inevitably prevent us from seeing the officer of the law for the person that he or she is. It will color it. We will project our fears we will project our desires. We will project our selfishness. We will project our own darkness onto that person and suddenly question their motives, right? Suddenly question how, them, and it becomes a judgment on them rather than the fact that I was going faster than the limit. And all of this filters the way we see people, and this goes on all the time for us, and it affects our relationships in, in many ways. And so when it comes to seeing God, you multiply this a thousand times over, we begin to see that part of God's problem in dealing with the human race is this. God says, the scripture writers write it like this, no one can see God's face. What do they mean by that? What do they mean by that? God is a spirit. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a literal physical face. So what do they mean when they say, no one can see God's face? Right? This, this is what they're trying to tell us. They're saying, we cannot see God as he is. He's too other for us. He's too, and Scripture talks about this. He's the other. He's holy. He's totally unlike us. We would not be able to comprehend what we were observing. And so, because inevitably, we project our own fallenness onto God. Now, I know we're going to go through some stuff here, and it's like, ah, i got to think about it, what he's saying. But here's what happens. We begin to read God like he's me. 
So what happens? God tells me, Bob, your sins are forgiven. My grace is total. When you confess something to me, it's put in a place where I will never remember it. What do I do? I sin and I come to God. I say, God, it's me again. I'm so, ugh. And I don't even want to confess. I feel like I should beat myself up a little bit before I come to him. I feel like I should, some, and what am I doing then? I'm trying to earn his favor. What have I done then? I've projected onto him how I am. I start to think there's no way he can forgive me. God, this is the fifth time I've come to you with this. And God is going, it's only the first time for me, I don't remember any of this. But I remind him, I remind him, why? Why? Because this is how I was as a kid with my parents. This is how I was as a parent with my kids. This is how I am as a human being. And I can project on God my fallenness, my humanity. See, people, getting people to believe in the existence of God or the existence of the supernatural, this is not what affects, this is not what changes them. People can believe in the supernatural and still be moral and spiritual disasters. In James 2.19, he says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, do the, do the demons believe that God is good and just and fair and loving? I don't think so. Are they believing the same things about the Father that Jesus knows about the Father? I don't think so. They hate him, but they believe in him. You see, you can believe in God, and there's been no change. It's a heart issue. It's not just a mind-intellect issue. And for all of us, what goes on in our hearts colors our ability to perceive any other human being. So none of us can see God as he is. It's impossible for us. Simply acknowledging that God exists does not change a person's heart. And for people who don't want to believe in God or those who want to flee from God, it will just make them nurse the bitterness, anger, and deepness all the more deeply and secretly in their hearts. And this is why scriptures say this. In Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does that mean, seek me with all your heart? It means I seek him above everything else. I seek him above money or status or success or fame or security or brilliance or looks or just goes on and on, right? I want, to, I want to know God. I want to know God. And he promises that if you do that, you will find him. And of course, this is what is so great. Our God is so good that even half-hearted attempts to seek him, he meets. Sometimes he reaches down and touches people who weren't even seeking him at all. I'm one of those people. I did not want God in my life. I shook my fist at him and said never. But his promise is this, though. If you will seek me, you will find me. Devotedly, persistently, sincerely, you will find me. I would say that if you're not sure if you know God, you owe it to yourself to seek him. You owe it to yourself to take him up on this. And, and if we as a church can help you, or if I as a pastor can help you, I would love to. So the first question that can trouble us so much is why doesn't God reveal himself more clearly? The second question that can trouble us is if Christianity is true, why aren't Christians better advertisements? Why are Christians hypocrites, right? We've heard this. It's kind of an old trope, but there's truth in it. Sam Harris, 
He wrote a, a, a couple of books. He's written a number of books. He wrote uh, one called A Letter to a Christian Nation and one called The End of Faith. And, and, and he argues that, that uh, basically uh, that Christianity and religion is the worst oppressive thing on this earth, right? That, that it is uh, the greatest threat to civilization and human survival. Now, this has been a real common theme since about 9-11, when 9-11 happened and things were done in the name of Allah, things were done in the name of Islam that were horrific, suddenly it caused this great storm. And uh, with the, the emergence of terrorist attacks in the name of various religions, and people who talk about this will cite the Crusades and the Inquisition and the Salem witch trials and on and on and on. And they talk about how the Bible has historically been used to defend slavery or it's been defended the subjugation of women or the divine right of kings. And, and, and these are common things that come up a lot. One guy who writes about this is an atheist named Steven Weinberg. And he says good people do good things and bad people do bad things. But, it takes, but to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. And I, that's a pretty funny, it's a good little quote, you know, and, it, and it's a good turn of a phrase. And I'm willing to start right here, right now. Let's just face facts. There have been horrible things done in the name of God. Let's just acknowledge that. And Christians ought to look at those things. They ought to look at those episodes openly, honestly, and humbly and not get defensive. Now, some of the people who have a historical axe to grind can exaggerate and distort the facts. That is a problem. But we should be open to the truth. But I have to ask this when we address this issue. I have to ask this. With these events, these horrible atrocities, were they the outcome, the logical outcome of the teachings of Jesus? The Jesus who said, love your enemies? The Jesus who said, bless those who persecute you? The Jesus who said, turn your other cheek? The Jesus who said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Were the Crusades and the Inquisition, were they the outcome of those teachings? No, they were not. There is no doubt. Or were they a contradiction of those teachings? And yes, they were. They were horrific things that were done in the name of God. But it is not what Jesus taught. And then we have to ask the other question, though. Has the human race done better in societies? that seek to eliminate faith in God altogether? Has that experiment worked better? The greatest bloodbaths in the history of the human race have occurred in the last 100 to 120 years. And the greatest killings have occurred in societies where they tried to eliminate faith in God. Stalin is responsible, and it depends on who you look, is between 20 and 80 million deaths of his own people. Um, a recent book by two scholars said Mao Zedong alone, just Mao Zedong in China, was responsible for 70 million deaths. Hitler was responsible for around 10 million deaths. Death spots in, in, in closer to us, Pol Pot in Canada, an atheist regime where he said, I have no no responsibility to God. He killed 20% of the population of his country in a short period of time. And so, I believe that there is darkness that resides in the human heart, and to eliminate God somehow does not create anything any better. If we remove all religion, we remove worship, and no churches, and no God, and no faith, does that mean people will start behaving better? I don't think so. I was at the airport a while back, 
And I was watching, there was a dad with his five-year-old son, and the kid was kind of cranky, and, you know, and obviously he'd been up, and they'd been traveling, and so, you know how that can be, your kid just begins to lose all reason. And the dad's desperately trying to cheer him up, and you can tell, you can tell as they're there, and the kid's getting a little louder and a little louder, so the dad's looking around like, oh, crap, people are singing, oh, son, listen, to so what he does is he calls, he calls, his, uh, he calls his wife. He says, here, you want to talk to mommy? You want to talk to mommy? He goes, here, go ahead and talk to mommy. And he reaches out. And I mean, and so I'm kind of standing. You know, it's like a train wreck, right? You're, you, you're like, I don't need to. Oh, oh, that poor man. I know how he feels, right? But I'm kind of going, well, how is this going to turn out? Well, this could be interesting, right? So he reaches over with the phone, and the kid goes, bam. And the phone hits this pillar, and you hear crack. And I'm like, Okay, the kid's going to die. I can see now how it's going to turn out. There's going to be a murder, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so, and so this, the dad, you can just see now because he's looked around. And he, get, and he picks it up, and he's desperately trying to control himself. himself. And he's saying, that was... Um, you know how when you're mad at your kid and you want to convey to them how angry you are, but you don't want other people to know, and so you keep this incredibly straight face, but you say, I'm gonna kill you. Again, I'm gonna, and he's whispering on his breath, but you can hear him. He's saying, that was not the right thing to do. That was wrong. Look, you've broke my phone, right? And the kid says, I was just trying to reach out and grab it. And I remember thinking, Whoa, whoa, as far as lies go, that's a far stretch, <laughs> you know, because I mean, it was a roundhouse, right? And so I'm just thinking, now, where, where, where does the darkness to lie brazenly and boldly like that, where does that come from? Where does that, I saw it in my kids. Where did it come from? It came from a lot of your other kids, actually, in the, in the children's church and stuff you guys infected mine with. No, it's, 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 a part of, it's a part of humanity. We have this darkness in us. It's called depravity, and it's in all of us. It gets into kids' hearts early on. So if we imagine a society with no religion or no faith or no God, you, you can't tell me that suddenly nobody's going to covet anybody else's money or house or spouse That suddenly people of different skin tones are going to love each other. That suddenly otherness is going to be solved. Greedy people will become generous. Angry people will become merciful. Bitter people will become grateful. Jerry Springer will get canceled. Everybody suddenly will support PBS and listen to NPR. No, no. There's a great theologian, Macaulay Culkin, in Home Alone. And he said this. He said, I don't think so. I don't think so. That's not going to happen. Because we're all hypocrites. We all struggle with that. Christians do. Non-Christians do. It's a part of the human condition. We pose. We, we, we're, we're hypocritical. We have image management. We try to spin things. And whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to struggle with that. This is what I love about the Bible, about the Word of God. Jesus and the prophets taught extensively that this is the way it is. It's real. We're all in the same boat. And so Jesus' promise to us is not this. It's not if you become a follower of mine, God's going to make your life pleasant. You're going to get a great job. You're going to have great health. 
His promise is that over time he will chip away at sin and selfishness inside you so that one day you will become good news to the people who need to hear good news. They need to see good news. Jesus says, that's what I want to do for you. I want to make you good news. That's the whole point of the good news of the gospel is that we become good news. And by the way, let me just say this. Jesus' plan to change the world is not to assemble a great group of debaters that can out-argue everyone. It's not, I'm not against debate, and I'm not against sometimes arguing. But his plan was this. His plan was to create a community of people that build their lives on the presence and power of God, a presence that overwhelms them so much that they become good news to the poor, that they break down barriers, the barriers between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, educated and uneducated, white and black, affluent and impoverished, they form a community of generosity, a community of oneness and inclusivity, a community of love that becomes light to a dark surrounding world. That's his plan. We can be good at arguing, fine. I loved debate when I was in high school and college and grad school. I love that stuff. I think it's because I like to feel like I win, you know, that kind of a thing. But that doesn't change hearts. I mean, you think about it. Very few of us come to Christ through someone debating with us. Most of us come, come to Christ through a relationship with someone who loves us. And we begin to see how powerful that love is in their life. And it's not normal. And it becomes good news. And so in Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says, look what Jesus has called you. He died for you. He loved you. He, he's done so much. Now, live a life that reflects that. Become Jesus to other people. That's still his plan. That's always been his plan. There is no plan B. So that leads us. Why doesn't God reveal himself more clearly? If Christianity is true, why aren't Christians better advertisements? Third question is, if God is loving and all-powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? You know, I should say this too. I was thinking about this earlier with question number two. Why aren't Christians better advertisements? You know, the really interesting thing, I was looking this up a while back. Most of the hospitals in India were started by Christian groups. It's like, like 80% of the hospitals in India were started by Christians. Because, because before Christianity came, they believed, you know, that, that, and it's still there, they have their caste status. So the upper caste they build hospitals for. The second caste, maybe a few. The third caste, no. The bottom caste, the untouchables, never. Never. So Christians came, and what did they do? They started building them backwards. They built mostly for the ones that had none. And then it worked up. So that 80% of the health care that is received in India started with Christians. That's an amazing thing. And that's just, I mean, that's just one little example. There's tons of them. Question three, if God is loving and all-powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering and pain in this world? This is an incredibly legitimate, powerful question. Natural disasters like tsunamis and earthquakes, accidents, car crashes, fires, diseases, heart attacks, cancer, Alzheimer's, MS, all of these tragedies. Stephen Weinberg, he says this, it's not on your sheet there, just the God of birds and trees would also have to be the God of birth defects and cancer. Now, sometimes this issue can be a little abstract. 
And so I want to do something. I want to hone in to a very specific example that people can point to. I read about it a while ago, and it was a, it was a couple, and it, was, it, it, it ends in some ways well, but they had a beautiful little daughter, and they had a pool in their backyard, and you know where this is going. And one summer day, it was so nice that the mom set up the playground in the backyard so her daughter could enjoy the day, and the phone rang, and the, and the daughter was in the playpen, so the mom ran inside to get the phone. The daughter was leaning against the wall of the playpen, and the hinge had not totally fastened, and it collapsed. And the mom talked for just a couple minutes and came out and saw her daughter at the bottom of the pool. And the memory, hmm, it was the beginning of a pain that no one could name. She would have died if she could have changed that moment. She could not. She would now have to live with that memory. The memory of how old, old her daughter would be haunts her on every birthday. To this day, she still writes about it. Every Christmas, the year she would have graduated from high school, she lives with emptiness, she lives with pain, she lives with guilt. And if this, I understand this, if this opens wounds for you right now, I am sorry. I am so sorry. But this is our world. And if our faith means anything, we've got to talk about things like this. As hard as this is, we have to think about it. Dostoevsky, who who was a believer in God, he wrote, the death of a single infant calls into the question the existence of God. And I know there are people here in various ways who know this pain. And sometimes Christians respond with bad answers. Sometimes Christians can be glib. Sometimes Christians can even intimate to people that they brought the sufferings on themselves by sinning. And sometimes we tell people they didn't have enough faith to be delivered. Sometimes Christians have added to the enormous pain and suffering that some natural disaster has caused by pronouncing the disaster as a result of God's judgment and due to some sin that whoever these people are talking about, it's a sin they don't like. Why is there pain and evil and suffering in the world? Well, a big part of the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I think it's interesting that in some religions, evil and suffering do not constitute the basis for any kind of intellectual problem for them. In Hinduism, for example, suffering is a, is a result of bad karma left over from a previous life. If you're suffering in this life, it's because you're paying for something you did in a previous life. In Buddhism, suffering and joy are illusory. You know, it's just a result of human desire. And so your goal in your spiritual walk as a Buddhist is to eliminate desire so you're immune to suffering, evil, pain, or joy, or happiness. And I think these, I have to say, these particular approaches to this issue, um, they don't make sense to me. I don't, I don't find any, any help in that. So I believe this. I do believe that God made human beings with a free will. And a free will inevitably includes the capacity to do evil and to bring suffering to others. And it has introduced our world to the fallenness that we see around us today. I do believe that God looks at the earth from an eternal perspective and that God understands one day all suffering will be redeemed. God sees things in a way that I don't. And that he has an eternal perspective that I cannot comprehend. I believe the message of the cross 
is that God has chosen to take the full weight of human suffering and cosmic evil and even what we would call God-forsakenness upon himself. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know the full answer, but I know those things. But I am struck by the consequence of what I would call the alternative. There is no God. There is no story. The strange silence of God, which some call the silence of atheism or the silence of no God. And that silence is a puddle, a puddle, a puzzle. It says that's all there is. It's just silent. There's no answer. There's no meaning. There's no nothing. Richard Dawkins puts it like this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties that we would expect if there is at, no, at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. A few years ago, I saw a cartoon in a newspaper, and it was two well-dressed guys going, they were going door-to-door in houses handing out pamphlets. And the one, they're at the door, and the person goes, the pamphlet is blank. And the guy goes, we're atheists. I thought that was cute, but I... Excuse, just a second. Never say again. Okay. All right. That's good. That's good. If there's no God, there's no story. There's nothing to write. There's no guideline. There's no indicator. There's no difference. You do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. The pamphlet is blank. But the mere fact that atheism can be depressing does not mean it's, it's false. If it's true, we should own up to it. But I notice this, we all have a sense, not just that life is hard, not just that we suffer. We have a sense, not just that things are bad, we all have a sense, and this is key, that things are not the way they should be. There is a better way. There is something better. And we all have this innate sense in us, and it reveals itself in so many ways, in so many things. I mean, it just, it's incredible how much it can, because we have this sense, wait, no, it's not totally chance. There are some ground rules that apply here. Things are not right. Things are not as they should be. Children are not supposed to grow up with no one caring about them. That's wrong. Where do we get that idea that that's wrong? It's innate. It's in us. We just believe it. Women are not supposed to be abused. Fathers are not supposed to die of cancer when they're 35 years old and their children are little. If the universe is a machine, a giant accident, a blind, pitiless indifference, where did we get the idea that this is not the way things are supposed to be? Because this is the way things always have been. Where do we get the idea that this is not the way things are supposed to be? It's in us. It's written on our hearts. It's from God. He tells every person this, and they can't escape it. I was reading a guy, a guy that wrote a book, and he was just saying, we just have to come to the realization that nothing matters, and nothing's important, and morals are just a construct that we all make up. And he says, and then, once we've received that, we've got to start telling ourselves, things do matter. There are right and wrong, and I will live my life in a way that reflects good to people. And I'm like, you just, conf- you just convinced yourself that nothing matters. And then you say, now we have to just say things do matter. You know what that is? That's lying. That's just lying. Innately, we know things are not right. Jesus said we have that idea because this is the way things... Because 
it's, things are not the way they are. There's something coming that's beautiful and glorious beyond imagining. The Hebrew prophets talked about it. Jesus talked and dreamt about it. It's called shalom. It's called shalom. It's when all things are set right. When peace is brought into the human existence. When love becomes prominent. When things are set right and God rules, there is shalom. I want to give you just an example. I am a sucker for these things. They're all over the internet, and I'm going to show you a video. Um, a little example of how things are supposed to be right. The, uh, the Nebraska football team years ago, one of their star players, met this little kid who had brain cancer. And he kind of took this kid under his wing. Before long, he told, he told his coach, can the kid come to games and practices? And yeah, sure, let him come, let him come. So then one day, coaches got together and said, this kid, we all love this kid. So in our spring game, you know, where they go, and this is back when Nebraska was good. Oh, <laughs> sorry if this is bro. Excuse me, any Nebraska fans out there. But he said, our spring game, red versus white, 65,000 people show up for a practice game. The spring red versus white. Let's get him involved. Let's watch this video. And he's wearing the number 22, guys. It is Jack Hoffman of Team Jack coming out of the field right now in this fourth down and short. Jack Hoffman has been adopted really by this football team. A young man who has battled brain cancer is on the field right now for the Huskers. One more snap for Taylor Martinez, too, who will hand it off to Jack. So Taylor gets the shotgun set, gives it to Jack. Here he goes. He's got blockers out in front. There he goes. running the midfield. Listen to this crowd. As Jack Hoffman, the young man that, as I mentioned, has really been adopted by this football team to score a touchdown. Oh, wow. What a moment. And both benches empty. That, that was a moment right there. Wow. Goosebumps. I knew that. Oh, man. I, I came prepared. Why does that affect us? Why does that affect us? Because we saw a little bit of what's right. People who are suffering should be loved and celebrated, not ignored and left alone. And one little boy, because of love, had a day he'll never forget. You know, for most of those guys on that team, they'll move on. Some, some of them went pro, some of them did. But I bet you, I'll bet you none of them forgot that. One moment where things were the way they were supposed to be. Things were right. That's a moment of up there being brought down here. Things on earth as they are in heaven, where that little boy is, is celebrated and loved. And so this is the shalom, and it's coming one day, and our hunger for it keeps driving us towards God. And running away from God shows why we're broken. It shows why all we, like sheep, have gone astray. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes, and if you notice, he came especially to people who were in pain, like Jack Hoffman. He comes to people who are struggling, and he says, I'll, 
I am going to love you. The pamphlet doesn't have to be blank. We have a story, and there is a hope. And as you leave this place, be the ones, because God is in your life, be the ones who bring peace and healing and love and mercy and righteousness. Be the ones who dispel these questions because of what God has done in your life. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think it's very interesting here that Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. Here it is. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Now, I know if Jesus said that to me, I'd be like, Jesus, I really want to. But I can't. And he gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's the only way you can do it. The power of God manifesting itself in your life will change you from the inside out. And you will find there will be times in your life where you will do something and you will go, wow, why did I do that? Normally I wouldn't do that. But I did something right because he's changing you. He's changing you from the inside out. And so Jesus says, go and be me. Leave this room and be a representative, an ambassador of Christ going out into this world, going out to work, to school, to homes, to businesses, to neighborhoods, to playgrounds, to wherever you go, and be healing and peace and love. And you know what will happen? Sometimes maybe people won't understand. Sometimes you'll be serving God and someone won't understand and someone will say something and, and you'll get hurt. That's part of the deal. Jesus did that too. That's what he means when he says, be me. Be me. Go out and love people. Love those who are hurting. And sometimes in their pain, they might even lash out and hurt you back. But that's because you're being Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for people who have gone on before us. We stand on their shoulders, men and women, who have done incredible things for you. Lord, we want that. We want our lives to matter for eternity. We want to do things that will last. Empower us to do that, Lord. You, you're the only one that can do it. And so we trust you. We yield to you. We ask you humbly, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we thank you, God, that you are the God that helps us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. If you're a guest here, we don't, we're not asking you to give. We don't expect you. We don't want you to feel compelled put money in.